Gracious God, we thank you for this church, and we thank you that we can gather and fellowship together, learn together, study together, serve together, and ultimately worship together. We thank you for your presence with us in this time and in this place. We pray that you would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, help us learn more of who you are and who you've called us to be. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Um, if you were to find yourself wandering around Australia, as one is prone to do, um, and if you were for some reason back in time in 1932, which is less likely, I will grant you, but if you were to come across the people of Cape York, you had better know what to do. Uh, because, of course, if you were approaching them, you would be a stranger, and they have certain expectations of how a stranger should come to them. Uh, and so here's how that would play out. Once you see the camp, you keep approaching, but you get about 40 feet away from the camp. You then put your weapons down, your spears down in front of you, and then you just squat down on the ground and you wait for as long as it takes. You don't say anything. You don't say, hey, I'm here, over here, out here. None of that. You just sit there. The tribe will have seen you, but they will pretend to not notice you. Hopefully only about 15 minutes later, but you never know. A man might leave camp just kind of going for a stroll, not looking at you, not noticing you. He just happens to be walking nearby and when he gets nearish, he'll just kind of squat down on the ground too, not looking at you either. After a couple more minutes, maybe, he might ask a couple questions. You should answer. But of course, you aren't looking at him. You're not looking at camp. You aren't showing any interest or emotion at this point. But if the man is pleased with your answers, he may call back to the village and and get a pipe to share with you, or maybe have a gift brought out to you, which you should then reciprocate in kind, so be prepared. And at that point, and only at that point, you may be welcomed in. But if any of those steps are not followed, or if you're in a rush, or if you're a little too eager, you are obviously dangerous and or crazy, and you will not be welcomed in. That's the easy one. If you are wandering around the Kalahari Desert, as one is prone to do, uh, and you come across a member of the Kung people, you will need to sit with their emissary and you'll need to list out all of the names of all of your kin. They will do likewise until you finally find one name that you all share in common. Not necessarily the same person, mind you, just the same name. Now, obviously, you, you may have to go back pretty far because we're not from around the Kalahari Desert, but, but, it, but if we can find a name in common, oh, I, I'm related to a David, you're related to a David. See, we can be friends, at which point you'll be invited in. Now, I don't recommend meeting the people of the Baffin Islands back in the 1800s. Their greeting ritual is a little bit more intense. Uh, on the one hand, when you arrive, there's going to be a great feast. So that's a good thing. On the other hand, the tribe will then line up facing you. One member of their tribe will come out in front of you. You'll stand you know, face to face. Your hands will be at your side. And he's going to 
strike you as hard as he can across the right cheek. At which point it's your turn. Strike him across the right cheek. At which point it's his turn to strike you across the right. And, and back and forth you go. By the way, by this point, everyone else will be singing or playing ball or something like that. But until one of you is vanquished, <laughs> you'll be welcomed in if you're still standing. Um, in other tribes, you stand at the gate and a boy comes out and asks you some questions. They then go back into town, talk to one of the elders, share that information. If you pass that test, you're, in, you're invited into the camp, but you're put in a hut kind of by the edges of camp, and you have to stay there for as long as it takes. This will give the tribe some time to get acclimated to you, to watch you, to observe you, to make sure you're not crazy or dangerous. Obviously, if you were to come out of the hut earlier than that, you must be mad and you will be kicked out, hopefully. Uh, but, but if you're accepted, then you can build your own hut and you can be part of the people. What's fascinating is that across tribes, across peoples, across times, we have developed different ways of testing, welcoming, and ultimately encountering a stranger. There's kind of this elaborate dance that we develop and different peoples in different regions develop them differently. How do we help you come in or how do I enter in when I'm a stranger or when you're a stranger? Joe Cajone, the power, author of The Power of Strangers, concludes this. There are themes among all these greeting rituals, rules, respect, time, meaningful contact, and some measure of commonality. When you met a stranger, you understood what you were supposed to do and you did it. In doing so, you demonstrated a measure of predictability, familiarity with the broader culture, and respect for the would-be hosts. By following these rules and sitting, sometimes unarmed for hours, or even allowing yourself to be punched in the face repeatedly, you, the stranger, also demonstrated self-control, evidence you were an unlikely agent of chaos, that you possessed all the desired human characteristics, that you had a mind in full and were therefore safe to admit. And of course, in different ways vastly different ways, in some ways we do the same thing. There are norms and rituals that we use to discern the safety and stability of the stranger, which is why we too have come up with these little nuanced ways to greet one another. And it's hard, most of you would just, it's hard to give you examples of this, except when someone then breaks one of those rules. There are certain things you're not supposed to do, and we all just commonly know that, which kind of implies that there's a right way to do it too. For example, and, and you've all hopefully not experienced this, you're, you're standing in an elevator with a bunch of strangers, the doors close, and then the person standing in front turns around. Hi! And you get nervous because this might be a crazy person. Because they either don't know the rules, which is scary, or they do know the rules and they're breaking the rules, which is more scary. 
We all know that's not what you do in an elevator. We're, it's a confined space. We can't escape. So shh, just don't talk. Stare straight ahead and, and you're good. There's rules, which would seem crazy to one of these tribes maybe, but that's part of our... We have these rituals and rules to try and make sure that the stranger is safe. To evaluate the stranger. Because the issue is this, how do I know I can trust you when I don't know who you are? Or the reverse is also often true. How can I gain your trust even though you don't know me? Which is why these rituals, these greeting rituals have developed. They're ways of I'll put my hand forward a little, you put yours forward, okay, okay, and then we shake, okay, okay, that worked. Now we can go to phase two. You can do more than that as you go. But if you go to reach out for someone's hand and they do one of these and then you do one of these and you do one of the fist, and it was that awkward piece toward the end of when COVID was kind of where it was a, you just didn't quite know how to, it messed up our greeting rituals. I don't know how I'm supposed to show you that I'm normal, show you that I understand where you're coming from. I don't know how I'm supposed to show you that I'm safe. How do we do this? Today we're continuing our series as we continue to look at and learn about strangers. And of course, we're still looking at how our treatment of strangers is a wonderful barometer of our own beliefs. We're still looking at how being a stranger gives us a lens through which we can see ourselves better. And we're still looking at how we've been called to love the stranger because we have been the stranger. But now in this new series, we're also trying to figure out how do we encounter the stranger? How do we start to welcome the stranger better? And so if you would, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, verse 6. Genesis chapter 32, verse 6. This is also a fantastic time for me to tell all the growth group leaders in the room. The passage is Genesis 32, verse 6. Not whatever I wrote down, which is far, far different and will make no sense. Uh, while you are turning to Genesis chapter 32, verse 6, I will let you know that we're picking up our story in the life of Jacob now, Abraham's grandson. Now we're moving in order. Now we are on our way to the New Testament, but we're not there yet. Jacob was a twin and was the second born. His brother was bigger. He was badder. He was scarier. Uh, and to make this situation more tenuous, the last time these two were together, Jacob tricked his brother out of a birthright and out of a blessing, fooled their father, and then ran for his life because Esau was going to murder him. And as he ran, he became a stranger. In some ways, he's been in exile for about 21 years now, but now he's on his way back. To make matters more tricky, he's actually done quite well for himself. He has a big family, great wealth, but now he's heading back home, and he has a lot more to lose now. And remember, the assumption is here that Esau is still angry. I mean, if you were going to murder someone, you probably still have some feelings toward that person. I, never, I haven't ever had that, but I, I'm pretty sure that would linger. And so if you're Jacob and you've been estranged from your brother for years and you're returning home, how do you do it? 
How do you encounter this new stranger? To make matters even more tricky, he sends out some messengers and finds out that Esau's on his way to meet him now. Oh, and he's bringing 400 armed men. So let's see what happens. Genesis 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for this daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then Jacob asked him, what is your name? Jacob then the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau 
coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Amen. So, Jacob, Esau, they are on this collision course. Jacob is rightly afraid because Esau is stronger and because they have become strangers. And so what does Jacob do? Well, first, he prays, which is always a good idea. Then he starts trying to develop this strange greeting ritual with gift after gift after gift after gift, hoping to show Esau he has changed, hoping to show Esau that he's sorry. After this, he helps everyone else across the river until he is left all alone on the near side. And it's at this point, out of nowhere, there's a stranger. Maybe it's Esau, maybe it's someone more dangerous, and they begin to wrestle. Of course, we find out it's not Esau, and this is not someone you probably want to be wrestling with because it's God. We also note that God allows Jacob to hold his own and blesses him, but also leaves him with a limp. In the morning, as one stranger leaves, another stranger arrives. Jacob extravagantly humbles himself as he carefully approaches, only to find Esau running toward him, embracing him, and they weep. That's what happened. But what does all this have to do with us? Because most of us have not stolen our brother's birthright and blessing, and most of us haven't gone into the MMA octagon with God for a couple rounds in the middle of the night. So what is, does this passage have to do with us? And I think the answer lies in how we might do a better job encountering the stranger and why we might want to. And in order to do that, I want us to take a deeper look at how Jacob not just encounters the stranger, but how he also is changed by the encounter. He encounters God and finds a blessing. He encounters Esau and finds healing. And you'll notice that it's only through those encounters with strangers that Jacob grows, that his faith matures, that he is changed for the better. So we begin with Jacob's encounter with God in the middle of the night. Now at first blush, let's recognize that Jacob must have been terrified. If you really know this story, you, you know that not only is he worried about meeting Esau, but he's probably also worried about the angry father-in-law he left behind him, who might be chasing him. When I say that Jacob is feeling all alone as his family has finally crossed to the other side, I mean it. And therefore, we're not surprised to find him afraid. And the nature of fear is that our choices get narrowed, our vision becomes more myopic, and we become more prone to fight or to flee. We see dangers behind every shadow, and the fact that it's night doesn't help that. And so when a stranger does arrive, the grappling is quick to ensue. Now, you could take exception that I'm calling God a stranger here, except that for Jacob... While he has encountered God before, Jacob has 
always kept God at arm's length, at least. When Jacob is leaving home and God comes to him in a dream, think Jacob's ladder, God tells Jacob the plan. And Jacob has the audacity to put all manner of conditions and addendums back upon God. If you do what you say, and if I'm okay, and if you bring me back, and if you do all these other things, if all of that's true, then you can be my God. As if God was looking for Jacob's permission. Jacob accepts God for as far as Jacob can use God. And thus I would maintain that for Jacob, God is still a stranger until this encounter. Let's also notice that this encounter is not safe, not just because the unknown is always unsafe, but also because there is some risk when we encounter a stranger, and Jacob does get hurt. And yet we also need to notice that Jacob's very identity gets changed. His name is changed. Jacob is blessed. And all because of this encounter with a stranger. What if sometimes it's only by wrestling with a stranger that we find certain blessings? What if sometimes it's only by encountering the stranger that we are changed, that our identity is changed? And if you think about it for a moment, all of the people in your life, not family, who have changed you the most at one time were strangers. But something happened, something changed, somehow someone welcomed someone in, somehow we encountered that stranger, the stranger became friend, mentor, teacher, and we've been changed. If that's the case, then by not being able to or willing to be with a stranger, maybe we are missing out on some of the fullness that God has for us. If that's the case, then maybe there's a deeper danger in not encountering the stranger. Because if we always only fear or mistrust the stranger, it may keep us from growing. But we don't stop there because this is only the first encounter with the stranger. Remember the last time that Jacob was around Esau, about 21 years before this, Esau not just threatened to kill him, but was armed and mobilized to do it. And now they are moving inexorably back toward one another. But it's at this point that I'm struck by Jacob's newfound humility and faith. And in some ways, you can only really see this if you know who Jacob has been. Jacob is a, a planner and a thinker, which sounds good, but, but only insofar as he's also a schemer and a trickster. Jacob always has plan upon plan upon plan. Jacob has no problem looking out for number one. Jacob doesn't need anyone else. He's going to find a way through. Jacob tricks his brother, deceives his father, and doesn't seem to have the slightest remorse about it because Jacob's only looking at himself. Now, 21 years later, and maybe after this encounter with God, Jacob has changed. Jacob has grown. Jacob has matured. And now we find him going to God and asking for help. That's, that's a new one for Jacob. 
And what's more, instead of trying to outwit, embarrass, trick, or attack Esau, he's sending him gifts, saying he's sorry, trying to be reconciled. That's new for Jacob. But as he moves toward Esau, apparently Jacob has learned that God is with him, that God is faithful, and that God has even maybe sent him to this stranger. And when they meet, they both end up finding healing and restoration. What if there is redeeming that can only be found as we encounter the stranger? What if there's healing that can only be found in encountering a stranger? What if there's restoration, even forgiveness, that can only be found as we maybe re-encounter a stranger. In other words, what if we need strangers more than we think? What if we need people who are different from us more than we think? What if we need people who are distant from us more than we think? I find it interesting that to encounter the stranger is ultimately an act of faith. Because otherwise, fear or selfishness gets, just gets the better of us. Otherwise, we'd prefer to fight or to flee. Otherwise, our world just stays too small and stagnant. And yet, it's only by encountering the stranger that we can change them. It's only by encountering the stranger that our world and our worldview gets bigger. It's only by encountering the stranger that we can be changed. And for now, never mind that God also sends us to serve and minister, even evangelize and share the gospel with the outsider and the foreigner and the stranger. But of course, that can only happen if we encounter them. And never mind the fact that all of the people you're closest to now, not family, were at one time strangers and thus have changed you for the better. But all of this means that we have to find ways to reach out, to welcome even when we don't know, to trust even when we have doubts, to greet others even when we are afraid. Somehow we need to get better at becoming the people who reach out, take a risk, bridge the gap. The ones who make eye contact and actually say, hi. We need to be the ones who are willing to engage and maybe even have a conversation. Because in this, people become changed. In the book Conversation, author Zeldin writes, the kind of conversation I'm interested in is one in which you start with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. It's always an experiment whose results are never guaranteed. It involves risks. It's an adventure. Maybe it's only in encountering the stranger that we become changed. Which also implies, I wonder if part of our fear of strangers is actually a function of the fact that we don't want to be changed. Maybe sometimes it's not so much that I fear them. Maybe it's that I don't like change. 
And yet maybe God has sent us to that stranger or the stranger to us so that we all can continue to be transformed. And maybe that's, maybe that's our simple challenge for this week. Maybe not that we would be transformed yet. Maybe, maybe our challenge for this week is simply can you make eye contact with a stranger you wouldn't normally make eye contact with and can you say hi and then see what happens. But who knows? Maybe that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You sent Jesus to us, that You encountered us, that You welcomed us, even though we were a stranger. Lord, we talked about it in the assurance of pardon today. While we were dead in our transgressions, it doesn't get any more stranger than that. You sent your Son for us to forgive us, to redeem us, to heal us, to save us. Not because we deserved anything, but because of your mercy. You sent Jesus to encounter us, the strangers which has forever changed us. But therefore, Lord, help us be the ones that can become better at welcoming the stranger as well. Help us be the ones that reach out. Help us the ones that hope for the best. Lord, we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.